You're listening to Sharing Things, a new University of Edinburgh podcast from the alumni relations team about the university community, which we want to get to know a little better. In this episode, you will meet Julia Calvert and Martha Greenbank, Melanie Reed and Rosie Taylor, Ann Miller and Hadrian Espiard, Catherine Wilson and Beth Fellows, Beth Christie and Odita Banerjee, Ross Nixon and Catherine Raynor, Sir Jeff Palmer and David Gray, Lori Watson and Russell Jones, Srishti Chowdhury and Abrasham Ahmad Sadeh, Kezia Dugdale and Prince Chakanuka. Guests have all been asked to bring an object as a starting point for discussion, and the object can be anything important or significant. It can represent an event, person, decision, experience, or it can just remind them of something. Let's see where this takes us. What's like your favorite uh, thing on the quilt? I mean, um, I do love my little tour t-shirts. I think that's, it's quite a, like, a nice mark of time because it obviously tells you the dates and the times you went and where you went. And that's quite nice to see because obviously a lot of my university time was kind of centered around the club. Which club? The Swimming and Water Polo Swim- Club. Ooh. Yeah. And like, yeah, a lot of my time and effort, I might say, is centered around that. So it's a nice, and it's just kind of, they all run together and it's just my four years at university. Did I see some cereal badges on there? Like I thought I saw Frosties. So Frosties, I don't know whether you have these. Frosties um, somehow sponsor all of the kids' swim badges. Oh. Um, and I think so for any <laughs> any of Brits out there will recognize these so well right. i'm a little bit too north american for that maybe yeah but it, it's funny Loads yeah i know i never i never really noticed why yes. throw them into the pool <laughs> get them to wear it off have you ever done any swimming julia oh uh yeah i was a, a lifeguard for about like half a half a summer and then um and then i wasn't <laughs> why only half <laughs> uh i got actually i got hired halfway through the season and uh, i just wasn't liking it it was so much responsibility for me back in in my day i would take any any job that would allow me to work outside i'm an outdoorsy person uh but mm. just being in charge of kids running on the deck and having to yell at them or you know to stop or, or lives it was just too much responsibility for me at the time so <laughs> declined the offer to do it again the next summer mm, yeah okay yeah nice yes yeah i have lots of little job experiences in my in my background that didn't last long <laughs> like name a, another example i was a bartender for about four four months which was great i, I really liked the uh, aspect of the job where you would stand behind the bar and talk to people i love that um i love doing interviews as part of my research for that reason um i love talking to people and fi- figuring out like their story uh and who they are but then uh serving drinks and having to multitask was not my forte let's mm. say so it didn't last, last talking long. and serving drinks yes was a little yeah too much to handle yep. mm. yes and they wouldn't just hire you as a you know as a talker <laughs> yeah. behind the bar i tried i tried but no they, they saw a problem with it for some reason what do you think about horses now i watch from afar now and i i feel a, a great sense of regret and distance and love, and I still want to get up close and uh, smell them. The smell of a horse is the most lovely, sweet, beautiful smell that endures. The smell of grass, grassy breath, and warm, warm air being blown down grassy nostrils. It's, there's nothing like it, and I, I yearn for that. But 
I was hurt so badly and, and destroyed so badly that, that I had to, I was going to say step back, I can't step, wheel back and um, be more dispassionate about it. Obviously, I went back to horses in the beginning after my accident, but my hands are so damaged, they don't go flat, they're like claws, and I can't even have the satisfaction of, of stroking a horse's coat anymore. I've sort of had my message, it doesn't work anymore. Is there a level of fear there, do you think, around being around horses? Yeah, I, and that's where a love affair makes you stupid, as everyone knows who's ever been in love. And after my accident, I regained enough function to be able to sit on a horse again, precariously, uh, and I went back to riding for disabled, completely dependent upon the, the goodwill of the horse to hold me in place and not to do anything stupid. I mean, I could hold the reins just about, but I had no real balance. And I, I was going great guns, and I was really enjoying going, and it was great rehabilitation for my core. I was developing much better recovery from my spinal injury because I have an incomplete injury. And then one bad day, the horse took off. I heard a monster behind the door and ran away, and I got thrown in the air and broke my hip, fell off, broke my hip. And... I kind of thought I went through so much grief at that point and so much pain and I put my family through so much and I was so embarrassed, totally embarrassed, that I decided you really have to be sensible now, so no more. In truth, I've never gone near them again. It's just that little poignancy of a lost love affair. But, you know, you compensate, you get on and I love being around young people and I love reading and books and learning again. If I wasn't still working, I'd love to come back to university and study something. <laughs> you can something. come if you, if you like. <laughs> yeah, what should I study? What do you think I should mm. study? You, you're, you're a scientist. You're yeah, a... so I study biology. I do zoology. I love animals too. So it's probably like a, a really big passion. I started off thinking I'd do genetics, and then I started doing some genetics, and that quickly went out of the window. So maybe don't do genetics. <laughs> but... Um, there's so much that you can study now, so much, yeah, and there yeah. are so many different ways of learning. We're going through some restructuring at the moment anyway, so the way that we look at knowledge and how we think about what is knowledge and what's worth learning is changing a lot. And I think that as that happens, more and more really interesting courses kind of crop up because you can take outside courses. Here I took some social anthropology in my first year and that was like really fun. And then I found myself wishing that maybe I'd done that and this year I took some forensic anthropology, which oh, was wow. really, really oh. interesting. So oh, I got to wow. do labs where they bring out real, sounds really gross, but like real human bones. There's so much there, so much like history and talking about different cultures and different ways that we've treated humans and stuff in the past that I find really interesting. So I think that you can study whatever you want, but you'll always wonder if you've made the right choice. I think anthropology is actually something I would like to come to do because it's so big and so deep and it's mm. about people. It's about yeah. where we're all from. I love it. And so in some jobs, if you were to be distracted by a sidebar and click alone, you would be in trouble. Mm-hmm. We're allowed to do that, which is this great. Is this is my dream job. It's very fun. <laughs> but Actually, you, this but is where, where do you go? When I'm you, wide-eyed. When you like, <laughs> go look for random knowledge? Well, so... This is a question to sort of answer your question. I spend too much time on Reddit, like way too much time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure as you'll know, like a very common Ask Reddit question is what's a fun fact or mm-hmm. what's a surprising fact or sad, happy, yeah. you know, put any adjective fact. So I get a lot of random facts through there. And then also, I don't know, I don't think it's intentional misinformation, mm-hmm. but because you get so little information, like 
the thing that makes it to the top, the information that makes it to the top is short mm. and easy to read, so you don't get the full story. But so then you can follow up. Mm. I was wondering, because your work is based on providing facts that people don't know mm. and there's like an influx of facts yeah. through like say reddit or twitter yeah. or like anywhere even the wikipedia yeah. which are all great but now you get yeah. 20 facts that do this yeah and so or how do you deal with now this influx of trying facts to find that, the right yeah, ones try to find the right ones and, and keep it interesting for people i think so for qi the tv program we have a really really long research period so we make 16 episodes and we research for i would say about six months 10 of us um, looking for stuff. So if you wanted to make a TV a program or a podcast about, say, uh, animals, you could get on the internet and within half an hour you could find 15 really cool facts. But they'd probably be ones that you've seen quite a few times. Mm-hmm. The one that I love, but I see it everywhere, is that otters hold hands when they sleep so they yeah. don't drift apart, which is the most, yeah, so nice. But because it's so lovely, I see it everywhere. And it's great, but the odds of someone seeing it already are higher. Mm-hmm. And what you don't want to do is have something where it's, you say, I've got this great thing and everyone knows everything you're about to say. So either it's right. something unusual to spin on it, or something where people aren't already looking so if you've got time the best way is old books out of the library oh, or not yeah. even old ones new ones you can't read them quickly and the stuff you get in there is really rewarding so i remember doing a column once about mythical creatures and took down this book from the library and it was about like yeah mythical creatures and like legends and monsters and i opened it and it hadn't been opened in so long that this big cloud of dust came out the top and like oh, blew up <laughs> so no one had read it in it's ages like from a movie yeah and yeah. you just think this is fantastic and so you sort of dig through and find this information and one that I found in this, I found this, this is like, I found this in a book and I found out later it was on Reddit, but I did find it in a book and it was about a history of London Zoo because I really love animal things. So I was reading about London Zoo, which is amazing, by the way, London Zoo, they like, they took one of the monkeys there by bus from Bristol, like they, all the way they got the animals to the zoo and then the elephants walked through the city um, and you used to be allowed to get in for free if you brought a dog or a cat with you to feed to the lions. Oh. I know, like so, and I read that and I was like, I've never heard that before. That's like, yeah awful but also like makes sense <laughs> so bizarre so, so bizarre. bizarre and then i can't remember if it came i found it online after we'd done qi or if it was before but it definitely is online as well and like, that's fine you want facts yeah. to be out there and also you can't really claim them as your own so in the office we have a slight not rivalry so if we all heard the same fact now it's like whose fact is it mm-hmm. and i was once at a lunch with some of my colleagues and some friends and one of the friends mentioned very casually oh do you know where the highest point of the alps is do you know which country the highest point of the Alps I would, is? I want to say Mont Blanc. Good shout. That's, that's mm. what I, my guess. Uh, Italy? I think it's in the Netherlands because somebody oh. climbed the mountain, cut the top off and put it in a museum in the Netherlands. No. Yeah. And so we were both went, oh my gosh. And I saw my friend, my this colleague. This is gotcha journalism. But they got, their, they got their phones out. I was like, no, they're typing it on the boards. And so we're all trying to get <laughs> oh it on first because we were like, such a good fact. Oh, wow. That's such, I think it's the Netherlands. Um, but yeah, it's in a museum. It's not on a mountain. So at the top of the mountain. So both of your objects kind of have to do with winning something. Mm. So I want to I wanna ask, like, what did it feel like when you won your election and also when you won your poetry slam? So I'd say I remember head to toe shaking because it was election night. They did a big thing in the venue in Pottero. I had my two closest friends from my course there who, bless them, came along. And um, I was just so, so nervous that a lot of work I'd, been flat out just doing this for the last two weeks I was worried that I was going to have a knock-on effect on my degree because I was in my fourth year and my dissertation was going to get the marks going to get docked and kind of was in a complete blind panic and then obviously it got announced and I just burst into tears and I'm not a crier at all so like this was such an odd emotion I literally was shaking head to toe I didn't know what to do kind of went up on stage to get this big board and they were like oh do you want to do a speech and I was like 
just shook my head <laughs> I was just like I can't possibly and yeah it was a complete flood of emotion which I don't often experience as a person because I'm not a big crier at all so yeah that was very odd but yeah an amazing amazing feeling and was definitely on a high for a for a, I'm still on a high I mean I'm, I love mm. it I absolutely love it I was going to say that I think our objects are linked in another way because your model of the idea that university is kind of like that space to find your happy place mm, yeah, I think yeah. that poetry was very much that for me but I guess like winning that's poetry slam I mean there was only three other poets so it wasn't that same triumphant moment of oh my god I'm gonna cry it was kind of like all right okay yeah no this feels this feels legit this feels right I did win another poetry competition at one point very early into writing honestly I'd started performing in something like the September and I won this poetry slam I think in January or February and I was considered quite a fresh face and I was very young in the kind of poetry scene that I was in a lot of people were much older cooler tattooed students who wrote much cooler poems about hooking up and drugs and I I show up and I'd be like here's a poem about when you really fancy someone but you just can't say it because you're an idiot (laughs) or here's my poem about how I'm just so clumsy and I just keep dropping things and it's a metaphor for my life yeah I don't know maybe that's why I wasn't invited to the cool after parties when I first started poetry they just knew that I would not know what to do with myself there But yeah, I think winning poetry competitions for me felt like such a massive, massive deal winning a poetry slam because part of it is decided by audience vote. So you're judged on three things, the the content of your poem, the performance of your poem and the audience reaction, which means a third of it is, you know, democratic, right? So I think that's probably the part that's always stuck out as meaning the most to me because when I win, it's like a whole audience was kind of behind that decision. And when I don't win, I kind of go, well, this particular group of people weren't feeling you tonight. And that's fine. But when they do, you can feel it. You can really feel them going on that journey with you, as cliche as that sounds. It's kind of an overarching theme of democracy. (laughs) Winning in democracy. democracy. (laughs) It just really reminded me of one of my very early lectures when I was at Edinburgh Uni. And I had just switched into doing philosophy as part of my joint degree. And the lecturer said one of the funniest things that I still remember where he said, yeah, in Socrates' time, ancient Greece was a a democracy, except you couldn't vote if you were a woman or a slave. So I was like, so... (laughs) Not a democracy. (laughs) Both of you are women in leadership positions. What would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned? So I currently work in uh, technology innovation at RBS, which is, as most people know, one of the biggest banks in the UK. Um, And I've been in a leadership position for the last couple of years. And technology um, fundamentally is quite male-dominated. So you're definitely in the minority if you're a woman. You're definitely in the minority if you're non-white. And also if you're young, there's not a lot of young people. And by young, I mean below the age of 40 people in leadership positions within either technology or banking, right? So it's hard to find role models, Mm -hmm. I would say. And that is a bit of a challenge because it's not something that affects you directly or Mm -hmm. it doesn't affect you day to day. But when you think about it, it does uh, seem to become this uh, mental hurdle where you think, 
oh, I'll never get that job or I'll never get to that position because you don't ever see yourself reflected uh, in like plus 15 years time. So um, I would say that that is a bit of an issue. The flip side is that I, I see a growth in engagement of diversity across not just gender diversity, but just across the board. Um, diversity in tech because a lot has been done in terms of policies and you know putting a lot of things into practice to encourage more and more people um, from different backgrounds to get into it but it's a work in progress and when I talk of role models it's it's something that if you set in motion now you'll see the results in like two decades time Mm. so because those are the the women or or those are the people from other ethnicities who will make it to leadership positions and as we know in banking one of the one of the reasons one of the contributing factors to the financial crash of 2007 was the fact that there was no diversity across the board there was no difference of opinion and there was nobody saying no we shouldn't do this and here's why and also there's now research to show that businesses that are more diverse are actually more profitable so I think I would say that a lot is being done, but there's there's a way to go there still. And that would be probably um, one of the challenges that I've faced. I can pick up on that about this idea of um, role models and the challenge, I think, that I felt in my career of going into conferences and perhaps being the only female that's there, mm. the only um, not having that reflection in the room, not seeing someone in a similar position, whether it's with children, whether it's age, whether it's gender, however, just not seeing that reflection there um, and to have that role model. And one of the things that I've found that has been so important to me is to have those networks, to mm. seek out people who are doing similar things as much as I can. So my friend I talked about, um, Helena, in the, in the north, spending time with someone who does something similar to, to me that I can have these discussions with in an open and honest way and get support from that too. And trying to find those networks is difficult. It's an absolute challenge when you're not, it's not easy to seek out the women that do the same things or people who do the same as you or who feel similar to you. I had a unique opportunity uh, last year to go to Antarctica. So I'm slightly obsessed with the north, but I'll slip in. I'm obsessed with the south (laughs) as well. So I had this opportunity to go to Antarctica with 80 other women who were uh, leaders in their fields from across the world. And we were selected. I was one of the women from Scotland that went. There was another lady from Scotland, too. And we were there together, chosen because of our positions of influence or, or leadership in whatever way that was, early career right the way through to people who were established in their careers as well. Um, people who were interested and focused on sustainability in whatever shape or form that may be. And then um, we were come and also the, the gender aspect as well about being female. That was part of it, too. And so we came together. And what that gave me, apart from, you know, this fantastic experience of Antarctica and the people that I met along the way. But what it's left me with is this network of women that I would never have met otherwise who are doing fantastic work across the world in, in different fields and different um, as you know, interdisciplinary work suddenly becomes a lot more possible. I can physically get in, in contact with them to establish research, to to just say, I'm feeling challenged by this. How would you react? What would you do? So those range of conversations that you can have. But what's important about that is not just that that influences me, is that I can then 
look at students that I'm working with. I can recognise in others that perhaps they need to be connected to this as well. So the network isn't just for me to feel connected to others. It's actually about what can I do then when I'm in this position to support others. So whether it's you know understanding what it's like to juggle children and study and part-time study and work or whatever experiences I've had, if I can help in my leadership position that I have to support others and to connect them into this, I think that's something I can do to try and mitigate for some of those challenges I think that I've faced, personally I've faced. What is the first Christmas that you can remember? I was really little. I can remember we used to go up to Coilham Bridge up near Aviemore. And I think I remember it because there were reindeer and you could go ice skating. It was amazing. But we stopped going after a while. I think it was, I'm from Yorkshire, so it was a very long drive. <laughs> Three small children all arguing in the back. <laughs> Christmas is always at my house with my mum's family. So they all sort of run into one. I remember I got a Harry Potter castle one year. That's amazing. So, yeah, that must have been... Lego or...? Just, you pressed a button and it opened up and it had like potions. It was very cool. You still got it? Probably up somewhere. Amazing. Everything goes in the attic. So that must have been about the time the first movie came out. And I remember going to see that because I was so excited. I was sick in my dad's car on the way there. We could go see it. Um, so we went back a week later... And it got to the scene where they're playing like human chess and I started crying so we had to leave. Oh. <laughs> so you never actually saw it. Ten years later, I decided I didn't like Harry Potter. Ten years later, I gave it another shot and actually, fantastic series. Mm. Just a traumatic experience will start to finish at that age. I think that's the oldest one. Although at three o'clock, we always eat a lot of food and then we watch some TV and then we just get really drunk. So What do you eat? So I always want turkey, but no one else likes turkey. I love turkey. We I have know. the same argument in our house. Everyone else is like, should we do something different this year? No. So I like you, turkey. I always want to do something different because we have roast beef and we have ham. And I'm like, turkey? Uh, we had it one year because I convinced okay. my aunt. Mm. But um, it's a proper operation to get all cooked. Like, we made like three different houses, cooking different <laughs> things, before I bring it over. It's um, quite good fun though, isn't it? Yeah. It's the tradition that's the nice thing, I yeah. think. Yeah. Where do you do Christmas? At your house, parents' house? Or? Well, it's all changed around a little bit. We used to usually go down to my mum and dad's, but very sadly my dad died last year. So last Christmas, mum came up to us, which is a bit weird. still feel like Christmas hasn't quite happened because it was quite strange. But it was nice, yeah. but it was just not in the family house. And then this year it's going to be really Christmassy because we're going to Germany to my husband's family. We're going to go to the, the real German markets and have blue oh. vine and, yeah, it should be good, but it's going to be quite tricky taking all the prezzies for the little ones yeah. who don't really understand why Santa's going to be travelling light because Santa's got a sleigh, <laughs> so it shouldn't really be an issue. <laughs> that sleigh has 23 kilograms for a bag. <laughs> yes. yeah. You have to pay for extra. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Santa's not having a gear. So we're sort of trying to explain that we have to bring them back, and they're like, "Well, maybe Santa could bring them back." I'm like, "No, he's tired by then." So yeah, he really does. I mean, he's been working really, he's <laughs> working really hard making all those toys. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're also at the age where they uh, they can't quite understand why there's a limit on what Santa can make because it's all free because he makes it. <laughs> so they can ask for the three hundred pound Hornby railway set. <laughs> I know. And you're like, oh. And they said, or an iPad. An iPad's really small. I'm like, well, small doesn't really equate to the monetary value. Yeah. But anyway, we'll just nod and smile and put it on your list and we'll see what he brings. Mm-hmm. My first ever job was as a sales assistant in a national toy shop. And just seeing like 
parents try and say no to kids. It's oh, like, it's really hard, yeah. isn't it? It's hard. I mean, it's sometimes like, it's quite satisfying if they're being really bad, <laughs> but they actually get genuinely upset. When someone cries because you say no, you feel like the worst person on the, wor- <laughs> in the world. It's like <laughs> looking at like a Lego Death Star of £300. It's like, realistically, I'm not paying £300 for Lego, yeah. but then that kid starts crying and suddenly the parents are paying £300 for oh, Lego. It's those tears. They've yeah. got things in them that cast spells on <laughs> soft parents, I think. Mm. I know. I worked Boxing Day, and that was a whole other experience of, like, if you don't have a receipt, I can't return it. Like, someone mm. turned up with a black bag of Lego, like, just indiscriminate Lego. <laughs> no box, no set, just, can I return this Lego? It's like, mm, I, no. I, I, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what was the ex- expectation here, but no. There is a historical, a very strong historical link between Scotland and the Caribbean, which goes back you know, over 200 years. And when people talk to me, they can't imagine that I would have anything to do with not only that history, that I would not have anything to do with one of their primary industries, which is to do with our making of of alcoholic beverages, whether it's whiskey or beer. So these items, I think, are very powerful because they demonstrate to not only my family, some of them are Scottish, but also it demonstrates to my students that, you know, we're all different, but fundamentally we're the same. Okay, so I brought three objects, but they're all very, very related. There's two books. One of them is called The Living World of Science and Colour. It's from 1962. The other one is uh, Newton's Pictorial Knowledge Atlas from around the same time, slightly older. Uh, And the third one is a slice of a geode, which is a special kind of rock, uh, a polished rock. I wouldn't be here without these three objects. I got really excited about, as most young boys do around the world when I was a kid, and these were actually the same books I read. They, I just found them on my mother's bookshelf like ha- half an hour ago. They're still there. She doesn't clean the house very much. But the good news is, when I open them, I still get excited about science, about the world, about how the world was formed, and really that's why I went to university here, and I did geography and geology and uh, and things like that. And 30, 40 years later, I'm still as excited a little boy as I was then around the world, the change of the world. So for me, these are symbolic of the understanding we have of the world and the fact that it continues to change and our knowledge changes. If you read these books, you discover, even in 1962, how little they understood of the world. But things that you would take for granted as a 22-year-old are completely wrong. Plate tectonics, which you think would be understood way back, they didn't understand it. It's not in these books. They were trying to explain the plates and the world, but they couldn't explain it in 1962. Isn't that startling? And then you read other things. They got it wrong. And if you're ever excited about that kind of stuff, you know, get the old National Geographics and realize that they didn't understand the world and they didn't understand people and interrelations of people and, say, economies, and they really still don't. I work for the World Bank now in Washington, and understanding you have to keep asking questions, keep challenging authority, keep challenging knowledge, keep challenging the status quo and the fact that everything is very interlinked. That Those are still things which have kept me going and get kept me excited from then on. So these are very important to me. I need to mention, this wasn't just about the books. These were given to me by my grandmother and my mother, who were obviously Scottish women, very, very strong Scottish women. And I didn't realise at the time how strong they were and how unique they were. My grandmother was a geologist before they even had geologists, and she's one of the first women to ever be a geologist. And she started as a domestic servant, serving in the big houses of Scotland. 
she was a very poor orphan, but she became a geologist and a tourist guide. And then my mother was the first female science graduate. And then I came along and spoiled her life as a child. And she was never let me forget that. She then became a housewife, and she still is. But she'll never let me forget that I ruined her life. So these aren't just objects. They're, they tie back to real humans who changed the way I am. Yeah. yeah. What would you both say is the biggest lesson that you learned from these objects? Well, as, as I said, you know, I've got the Jamaica telephone directory with me and a lot of people would say, well, what's the point of having a telephone directory? Yeah. But in 2007, the 200th commemoration of the abolition of the slave trade in 2007, what I noticed that if you look at the books which were written about the, the history of the slavery and the slave trade, I could not find any real evidence of the significance of the, the contribution that the slaves made to the Scottish economy. I couldn't find any evidence of what I call the cultural and genetic relations between the Caribbean and Scotland. In fact, people were talking about the Scottish diaspora, and the Scottish diaspora was really all white. <laughs> You're talking about Canada, America, Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. And I find that rather worrying because... I knew in my instinct that the Caribbean, in terms of the culture, I saw there as a boy. And I could see that there. But I spoke to Scottish people when I came here in 64, and nobody seemed to know that very well. Mm -hmm. And just to share intuition, I sent for the Jamaica Telephone Directory. And when it arrived in 2007, I was very surprised. About 70% of the surnames in it are Scottish. You know, there are 2,500 Campbells in the <laughs> yeah. Jamaica telephone directory. And when you think these are only people who can afford telephones. And when I looked at the Edinburgh and Lothian telephone directory, it had just about half as many Scottish surnames. Mm -hmm. And this has now become an important part of the history yeah. of this historical link. And I did my DNA just for fun. And um, I found that, you know, I'm about 5% um, Shetland um, stroke Viking Finland. <laughs> yeah. So there is that link. Yeah, we're all interconnected. Yeah, where you've got a black guy who is part of the Shetland Finland history. Mm -hmm. And the Shetland people would have been in Jamaica. So I find that is extremely important. It shows that, you know, we have a relationship. I mean, we can't change the past, but we can change the consequences. And I think if people are made aware of these historical links, then people are mature enough to think about it and say, well, I have some responsibility. Can I ask what makes your like creative juices flow? Because you're you're both like creators in, in different ways. Lots of things, actually. I, so, I sometimes need to kind of sh like shut out the noise of the world a bit to to then like open up other other doors in my head. But um I mean, I draw inspiration from loads of sources, lots of other art forms, a lot of writing, a lot of other music, natural sounds, historical events. Um, I'm particularly interested in our connections with nature and um, I suppose not just human emotion, but the way our minds work and the way that nature has been a way of um, coming to terms with you know, life events or good and bad and particularly in traditional folk song, you know, natural imagery has really been used n not just to like express or convey things but there's like a, a healing process in trying to explain what's happening in your mind and in your in your nervous system and your body and 
trying to explain that through what you see in the world around you and historically that's been quite you know rural situations rather than urban stuff so it's changing a bit now but we in folk music we use a lot of natural imagery what about you Russell? Um, similar but different I guess like the the point of inspiration often for me is other people's artwork um, so reading in someone else's poem or listening to a piece of music but I whilst interested in nature I guess I am one of those kind of more urban writers I guess, because that's where I've lived um, and that's kind of my point of perspective and also I guess just because of my perspective on the situation of nature at the time that we're in of mm. humanity kind of destroying it um, yeah. which has been going on a while you know of course but we're kind of at this extreme point now and it's very difficult for me to be positive in that mm. way um about humanity's impact on it but I, I do agree that the other way around nature's impact on humanity is a a force for peace and and, and yeah. good good times yeah i mean I, I think it's really interesting that you say that because i've you know over the last kind of 10 years i've been exploring some of those themes and and working with the kind of the shapes and moods in in specific regional landscapes and i now when I'm looking back and reflecting on that work I'm realizing that it's just you know probably about 10 years of of musical exploration of sadness Mm -hmm. which is not what I realized I was doing it at the time so it's not particularly positive music at all it's actually it's pretty I mean not I wouldn't say melancholic it's like there's like a rawness there's like a bit of despair there yeah do you do you actually find it's easier to write sad pieces yeah uh, I do at the moment I'm, I'm actually about to see if I can write something a bit more upbeat <laughs> I feel like I need to just because I thought I was kind of using not a full palette because I think that develops over time but I thought I was using a pretty varied palette but yeah. I've kind of realized actually I was not caught up but I, you know I was really engaging with the I don't know the concepts and the stimuli that I had for the work and I've responded to that in quite an honest way and I've got this, you know, everything's just pretty sad and downbeat actually um, and now I just want to check that I've still got those <laughs> those other parts to my, yeah. you know, music making mm-hmm. so yeah, prepare for some upbeat anthems Do you think it's maybe the subconscious coming through a little bit, you're trying to do something more positive but actually something else is interfering? Yeah, I mean I think there's, there's always, your, you'll know there's always what you intend to do and yeah. then all the other stuff that just comes out that you then you can craft and play with it once it's out but it's also quite nice not to deny those things isn't it and certainly I mean I've had some of my own mental health issues and some really really like sad life events through that time and I'm sure all of that was finding its way out as well yeah sadness Sadness. the only reason I I mentioned I I feel like there's a kind of similarity I'm guessing it's just an artistic thing there's an artist that I spoke to once called Marianne Baruch she was a professor she still is a professor in America and Mm -hmm. she said that she felt metaphor was a, de- a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. So because we can't cope with the reality of something, we turn it into a metaphor. Yeah. I can almost see that in, in music as well, maybe, or in that way, you know, you're trying to do one thing, but actually it's just a way of coping with something else. I think there must be a lot of that, and not just in our artistic expressions, it's in the way we live our, our lives and the conversations we have and choices that we make. Or like Facebook and things, you know, everyone yeah. portrays this idealized version of their life where only the good things are kind of on display yeah yeah and i mean i'm kind of interested in different art forms in terms of what they're expressing and the way that they express different different things so it could be you know situational or specific experiences or it could be larger kinds of 
emotional experiences but in folk music we a lot of people think it's, oh, it's just for fun it's just mm -hmm. but it, we've got the full spectrum like any art form you can say a lot with you know just a few bars of music a few bars of melody so um that's something i've been exploring but then you know i think most folk would agree that in you know short stories and poetry the full spectrum is really obvious I, th I think like cartoons and particularly video games are one of the like the greatest art mediums because they can incorporate all this stuff the visual the written word the music and then for me video games also incorporate that element of um choice and being involved in it which actually most art forms don't because you're sort of not tested mm -hmm. in the same way you know if i listen to your piece of music you're gonna, gonna say okay now what do you think that was about? Because I'm not playing another song until you tell me. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to get it right. <laughs> when um, the gig's over. <laughs> yeah. Whereas um, video games kind of do that mm. and they kind of involve you another way. Do you write, do you vlog regularly? Ever since blogs came around, I think I was just 14 or 15. I used to blog a lot and that really helped me find a way to express what I was saying. And I was a big blogger on I don't know, Blogspot and WordPress and stuff. Mm. But I feel that was more like journal, like everyday stuff that I would write. But ever since I grew up more, I started to write more fiction, which is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I, I think I started to write a little less bloggy stuff. I mean, now that I look back on it or if I read it, it's like super whiny and super lame. <laughs> like, oh, why did it that boy not look back at me and some, some <laughs> stupid stuff. But yeah, I write more like fictional stuff now and I write regularly in the sense that I am always working. So I finished my first book, but now I'm working on my second one. And uh, I feel that I, it doesn't give me enough space to also write about my day or like what I'm going to do. Do you write fiction in your journal? Hmm, not so much fiction. Maybe it's not necessarily in the journal. But I went through a poetry phase this year. <laughs> it was it was a bit vogue. I had some friends who were really into poetry and I'd go along to their open mic nights and watch it and it was really amazing and they had such beautiful things to say that I kind of picked up on it. And I don't know if you've been to any poetry open mic nights, but they kind of stand up and they're like, I couldn't sleep one night. So I just thought, oh, I'll just write a poem. And then it's like <laughs> this perfectly well-versed, beautiful piece of, I, mean, I don't know, literature. So I had this one night where I couldn't sleep and I was like, ah, oh, this is what they all do when they can't sleep. And I, I can't, it's not often that I can't sleep. I really like sleeping. And I was lying there like, this sucks. <laughs> what should I do? And then realized everyone else would be writing a poem. So decided to write a poem. But I did that on my phone notes pages. I know some people who have researched into people's notes. I think notes pages can be quite exposing, more so than a journal. So exposing. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Something you don't necessarily want people getting hold of. What inspired you in the middle of the night that one time? It, it all got a bit weird and cheesy. It was a bit lame. I mean, it was it was very bad poetry, but I think the idea of, like you said, taking something out of yourself. I kind of wrote about some random stuff. I think, I don't know, like wrote about a romantic sunset. Or, <laughs> Hello and welcome to my mind. Um, but like the idea of processing something into words, I think I can kind of, after that experience relate to a little bit but I, I can't say that I'm anywhere near an, an author like you are I mean I, it's the only thing I know how to do so I better do it <laughs> but uh, I like to write I 
always wanted to write ever since I read good books. So I wanted to create good books. And uh, J.K. Rowling was a huge inspiration for me <laughs> as, as for everyone. Classic. Yeah, yeah. That's Is that why you're in Edinburgh? <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit influential for me. But before I started my master's, I was a writer who never really wrote because I always thought that I would write something one day, but mm. I never really got down to it because it takes a lot of time. But once I started my master's here, which was in creative writing, I had a routine and I would write every day. And since then, I've been writing a lot. Where do you get inspiration from? Everywhere, uh, for sure. But I would like to be a much better observer than I am now because I think that's your food for writing. I do keep a database of all the dialogues or, or the nice lines that I hear or nice jokes. So maybe I'm stealing your jokes. <laughs> but that's your notes pages. Yeah, that's people's my conversations. notes. For sure. <laughs> I mean, I make a list of these things and when I'm writing something and if I'm out of inspiration, I just take one of the jokes and somehow make it fit in the in the, in the the scene. Also, I feel that reading good books is very inspiring for you to write something. I think that's the case with all creative arts. I mean, of course, you have to consume a lot of good art to create something yourself. Do you also play some music or... Uh, I was that kid that tried and failed at everything. <laughs> probably didn't even fail. Like, everyone had such in good intentions for me to be great. And I just was like, nah, violin's lame. <laughs> the flute's not cool enough. The guitar's too heavy. I don't know. I kind of reached the end of my schooling, of what, high school, and was like, oh, crap. I should have put more time into this. There's been so many great resources, and I've not done anything. I sing oh, a wow. lot. In the shower, out the shower. <laughs> I'm a professional shower singer. But no, like nothing else has really been honed in. But I know what you mean. Those kind of creative influences kind of come together. I mean, you can be listening to a song and be like, wow, I want to paint. Or, or wow, I'm going to write a story. I think it definitely like that kind of inspiration can come from other people's creativity as well. right? So Prince mentioned, you know, staple diets. Do you have a staple diet? Not a very good one. No. So I, I've spent most of the last 10 years working in politics. Quite long days. Uh, it's a very privileged existence, but um, it's quite it's hard work too in the sense of long days, lots of pressure, and you often forget to eat and you kind of live off of coffee, I guess, like a lot of students do. Mm-hmm. And then when you get home, you realise how hungry you are and you make really bad choices. So you eat really carby, cheesy, lovely things at night that then just sit in your tummy and make you fat. So, <laughs> <laughs> as simple as that. It's as simple as that. So there's ways around it. So when I became leader of the political party, uh, the Labour Party in Scotland, I had to become much more aware of uh, how I presented myself and how I looked because people expect their politicians to always be smart and always have makeup and women should always wear high heels and there's a lot of gender stereotypes and stuff in that. And so I had to care a bit more about you know how, how I looked after myself. So I set some new rules, like I wouldn't eat carbohydrates after six o'clock at night. So I would have to try and aim instead to have a really good lunch and then eat really lightly in the evening. And that was the only way I could sort of maintain my diet. So it's very interesting to say, like, there were all these, I guess we could call them constructs that you had to live with. 
if you had a choice to change them, would you change them? Were they important? Was it important for you to kind of change your routine just so you could fit into this lifestyle? That's such a good question. I, I toil with this a lot because you know, a great example would be high heel shoes. Yeah, I never wear high heels, but when I became leader, I wore high heels and I started to wear dresses in a way that I wouldn't normally do. Now, I never wore anything that I felt uncomfortable in because that's too far. Okay. Because I can't do my job properly if I don't feel good in my own skin. Right. But there was a construct which was politicians look like this. And I think that should be challenged because I think people want their elected representatives to be diverse and to look more like they do. Exactly. But at the same time, you can't on your own be the person that changes all of that single-handedly you can try and it will be a valiant effort Mm -hmm. but you can't expect a sort of cultural mass to gather behind you and deliver the same thing especially when the media are going to be the first to turn around and go she's turned up today in her jeans (laughs) and that takes you to a negative place I was in Quebec recently, I was visiting the National Assembly of Quebec and I met the leader of a new party in Quebec called Quebec Solidaire and it has two leaders, a man and a a woman leader, like joint leadership. But the female leader of this party was a woman called Manon Massé and she was like the most amazing feminist. She had grey hair and she didn't care what she wore and she was in her 60s and she wore flat shoes. But the force of her personality meant it didn't matter. Mm. And there's something beautiful about that that I think we should have more of. But I don't know how you get everyone to that place. It's not the biggest problem in politics, but a lot of my new job is about trying to break down the barriers that people face entering politics. And I think for a lot of people, they look at the people that represent them and they see an elite that they can identify with. Right. I don't know how you would describe um, the kind of politicians in Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. but I'm guessing they're not hugely reflective of the diverse country that Zimbabwe is. Um, It's interesting that you say that because I think, especially in Zimbabwe, a lot of the politicians are much older and culturally we are brought up to, like any culture, brought up to respect people who are older than us. But I think in the Zimbabwean context, that respect is, it gets to a point of you sometimes feel like you're not being listened to based off of your age. So kind of age uh, equals maturity equals wisdom. So a lot of young people don't quite, or at least for me, we don't quite feel connected in that someone who's the minister of youth could potentially be the person who probably won't listen to you because they feel they know everything, they know everything that needs to be done for you. So at that point, it's kind of like, oh, politicians is just these people who represent you, but you don't necessarily identify with them. You mentioned barriers that a lot of people face when entering politics. What were some barriers that you faced? Well, I was really lucky because I was quite late, I guess, in my life to identify what my politics were. So in the party that I was elected representative for, the Labour Party, it's quite traditional for uh, young people to support it and to get involved in it at a very young age. So a lot of my peers had been political since they were like 15 or 16. I wasn't. I, mm. I didn't even really... I didn't vote at all until I was 23. Wow. Um, yeah, which is which I feel very guilty about now. But honestly, at the time, I didn't understand how politics related to my life. There wasn't a, a connection right. there for me. I just, I didn't think it mattered. 
to be honest, who is in charge. And I still think a lot of people who are under the age of 25 feel that way. Maybe maybe less so now, because certainly in UK politics, there are polar choices to be made now in a way mm-hmm. that maybe 15 years ago, the political parties were much closer together. It took me a long time to kind of identify my politics. And then when I did, I met a lot of really interesting people really quickly because I joined the party here in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So my member of parliament at the time was Alistair Darling. He was the trade minister. He went on to be the chancellor. So I had a really like lucky experience of meeting interesting people early on who were keen to um, help me and believed in me and saw, I guess, some sort of talent that they wanted to support. So I had quite a, a fast rise in, in politics. And when I became leader, I was uh, 33 years old and I was telling a lot of older people what to do wow so i was young and female oh, oh wow yeah and that 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 came with its difficulty sometimes but more often than not i was respected because of the authority of the position that i held mm-hmm. but i definitely saw some barriers creeping in at that point there are some people largely white middle class men who didn't quite like being told what to do by me mm-hmm. uh, can, can you imagine oh, yeah. <laughs> Unimaginable. but just to answer you, quickly answer your question in the round if you look at politics today we have a shocking record around black and minority ethnic representation in scotland we've only ever had four politicians in our elected parliament that aren't white and they have all come from they're all men and they all come from the same pakistani lineage so for example we've never had an african woman or we've never had a chinese man in our parliament everybody else in the history wow. of 20 years of devolution have been white that's a big problem that we need to understand as a country we're not very good at having um people with physical disabilities uh, accessing politics lgbti is quite well represented but i can't really explain why so there's a lot of work to do there and that's before you get to socioeconomic factors like class how easy it is for somebody who's working on the factory floor to have a brilliant idea about how their country can be fairer and better and see politics as a means by which they do that Thank you for listening to Sharing Things. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google to catch our next episode. Be sure to visit our website to read more about our guests and other episodes at www.ed.ac.uk slash sharing things podcast with little dashes between the words. You can let us know what you think on the website or by using the hashtag sharing things podcast. See you next time.